everybody, this is Muncie Steed, and welcome to CEO to CEO. We give you access and an understanding of what it is for us to break that glass ceiling and take that position. I am phenomenally excited about uh, this brother today who truly has insight and introspective on what it is to be an EXE, executive, things that we all are and capable of, but he's had the experience and had the opportunity and shed a light on what it is to actually be a black executive CEO, run an organization, run a board. And we want to give insight to those of us who both aspire to be in those positions and need to understand the responsibility of inclusion, diversity, and what it is to actually be a CEO. I'd like to welcome Maurice Jones. How are you? I'm great. Nice to be with you. I appreciate you. Uh, CEO, uh, when did you aspire to that position? And when did it first hit you that we needed more of you? So it's an interesting question. When did I first aspire? I think it was probably when I was practicing law. So I went to law school and right out of law school, I was a corporate lawyer. And I was uh, in a big law firm in Richmond, Virginia. And in that role, I was providing counsel to um, corporate executives and helping them to consummate transactions. And honestly, what I was seeing was they were having more fun than I was, uh, that the, the actual business side of most of the transactions that I was working on seemed to have a lot of strategy, a lot of leadership, uh, and a lot more fun than drafting the documents, the technical stuff that I was doing. And so I think that was the beginning of my thinking that I wanted to learn as much as I could about this business from the legal perspective, and then hopefully transition to um, to being one of those executives, to actually being uh, the leader of an organization. And to your point, um, I saw very early on that there were very, 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 very few people looking like me who were running organizations, either in the nonprofit space or the for-profit space. And um, for me, that was um, that was just plain old wrong. And so uh, my view was uh, we needed to be in every space, in every job out there, including the CEO job. And um, that um, those were the beginnings, if you will, of my aspirations to um, to lead an organization, to lead people. You know, it, it sounds a little bit Reggie Lewis. Uh, it comes to mind when I think about what you were saying, attorney to uh, being close to the deal maker to being the coming the deal maker. Um, when you think about the skill set for young brothers and sisters, how important was it to acquire that legal degree and then secondarily be able to have that degree to be able to use it as a leadership tool as a CEO? The training was, I thought, quite important and very useful for me, both as a lawyer and then as a CEO. And what I mean by that is 
the um, the ability to believe that you could solve problems, that that was your job, and that there was no problem that couldn't be solved somehow. And what the law really uh, prepa prepared you to be a part of was the solution to uh, to problems or opportunities. And that is definitely a mindset that I found very useful as a lawyer and um, as a leader of people, right? Because you could come to an issue or a fork in the road and the mindset of a lawyer is, okay, let's solve this. Let's figure out how to solve this riddle. That training, that mindset, that confidence, that belief has been critical for my journey both as a lawyer and as someone who's leading uh, other people. Uh, so yeah, it, there's also no question about the fact that the credential itself opened opportunities for me in the marketplace that people rightly or wrongly ascribed certain attributes to me as a result of the credential I had. So that credential just by itself was definitely a path breaker for me. But the, the real sort of uh, piece for me that I think has been the most sustainable piece has been the mindset that the legal training and the legal practice gives you, which is that you can solve the problem. There's no problem you can't solve. Uh, and that has been helpful. So take us into the boardroom. Many don't get there. There clearly isn't enough uh, at this moment, uh, black men and women in the boardroom. For those who don't know the relationship between a CEO and board, can you give us some light on the role that the board plays and why we need to understand that this is a position that we need to feel as well, uh, being on board? Absolutely. So, so look, when the board is uh, functioning at its highest level, uh, a board is providing strategic advice, providing strategic counsel, helping to approve budgets. So helping to say, yes, this is how this organization is gonna spend this money. Yes, this will be the priorities of this organization. Yes, here are the values that we're attempting to advance. We need to be in the boardroom. There is no question about it. And think about it. Ultimately, the board hires and fires the CEO, the leader of the enterprise. Um, so the board is an indispensable partner that shapes an organization's uh, values, shapes its priorities, shapes its culture. Um, we need black talent in that boardroom um, and at the tables uh, of the committees in, that make up those boards, um, helping to make decisions because they are crucial for our communities, for our uh, opportunities, and frankly, for the trajectory uh, of the economy. Uh, so you, you can't underestimate the role of boards, if you will. 
Super. Um, moving right in step with that, strategic thinking. When you literally share strategy, if you were given a speech at a Howard or a, a Hampton or a Fisk, Morehouse, Spellman, and you wanted to share why young people need to be problem solvers and strategically think, what would be the title of your speech that you would encourage them to be as future CEOs? The title of my speech, if I were thinking about it in the terms of strategic thinking, would probably be something along the lines of being bold. Um, I would probably just say, be bold, right? Actually, let me, let me do it another way. Fearless and bold. What, what strategic thinking ultimately is about is um, making sure that you're trying to um, impart on an organization the kinds of aspirations that it needs to really be transformative, to really make a difference, to really matter. And nowadays in particular, what we need is fearlessness and boldness. Don't get me wrong, we don't need recklessness. You still have to be a steward of the enterprise. But what I see too much of is incrementalism, is sort of a conservative mindset, uh, which allows you to probably continue on um, on that organization's trajectory just where it is, perhaps making incremental progress. But what we need is we need exponential progress. And you're not going to get that if you're not of the mindset of taking smart risk, being bold. And so that would be my encouragement for any of those places that you, uh, that you just mentioned. That needs to be our mindset. Uh, I love that, uh, being bold. Well, talk about being bold. You, you've run a few uh, organizations. Um, clearly, uh, if we can, just step back a little bit. LISC, L-I-S-C, what was that like, just in terms of the role, the responsibility, and the impact that yeah. you had? Yeah, that was a fun job. And frankly, I thought I'd be doing it for much longer than, than I did it. I did it for uh, about four and a half years. Um, LISC is the largest community development financial institution in the country. Um, right now, annually, LISC invests somewhere close to $2 billion in capital in mostly under-resourced communities and people and businesses and nonprofits around the country fighting poverty, fighting the, the wealth gap that breaks down largely along race and place. And LISC is one of those places, speaking of boldness, where, um, it, where you have the potential to be a transformative partner for black and brown communities all over the country, as long as you're willing to be bold. 
as long as you're willing to really aspire to live into the boldness or the bold opportunities that you have. And so what it was like leading it was always trying to make sure that um, I was helping our leaders in particular to be bold about our aspirations, to not just pursue what we knew we could accomplish, but to raising the bar because the communities that we were working in needed that from us and with us could raise the bar, could beat expectations um, that others had for them. And so running a list was just that journey. It was just raising the bar, raising the bar. And, um, and I, I really enjoyed it and um, am really grateful to the people that I worked with there. Uh, admire their incredible dedication and their uh, incredible um, commitment to the work. And um, we'll always try to be helpful to LISC uh, um, in the future. Well, I, I think this is, uh, I think one, you take experience from one to the next opportunity and you think about 110. Why 110? Um, clearly you could, Go sailing, or 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 teach, speak, just be on boards. But you pick another opportunity to strategically lend your your talent. What? The mission, my friend. The mission. Um, so we live in a country now where the wealth gap between whites and blacks is ten times. In fact, depending on what city you're in. Uh, the wealth gap is even larger than that. I remember the um, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston in, a, in a, around 2015 did a uh, review of the median wealth of white families in Boston and the median wealth of black families in Boston. They discovered that the median wealth of white families in the Boston area was somewhere around $247,000. They discovered that the median wealth of black families in the Boston area was $8, no zeros, $8. And you cannot, that, that wealth gap is, um, that it translates into a health gap, into an opportunity gap, into a power gap. Um, literally the life expectancy differences are 10, 20 and 30 years difference, same city. And so my view was, we had to be intentional and bold in working on what I think is the greatest risk to our democracy, this, this wealth and health and opportunity gap. And so when 110 came along and they were focusing the private sector on addressing this uh, literally systemic barrier to people earning their way into the middle class in America, my thought was yes. This I want to be a part of because this really does tackle one of these big issues that we have been confronted with in our, in our country since its inception. And if we can get the private sector to lean into this with the resources and the leadership and the sustainability that it has, we actually have a chance to truly make a difference. And so that mission was what invited me 
to really throw myself into this and, and to try to be uh, to try to be helpful uh, at it. But that's that's what that's why I'm not doing something else right now because I think this is a very very transformative mission and opportunity, and I've not seen the private sector get behind something like this that is unambiguously about black talent in my lifetime. Let's let's unpack that a little bit about black talent and what that conversation is like when you speak to other CEOs uh, about making a commitment to 110. What's that conversation? Yeah, so the conversation is usually um, focused on the fact that they have a ton of unfilled jobs, good jobs, um, that they need to attract talent to. Uh, they have and talent that they're not currently attracting. They have opportunities also for promotions internally that they're finding that they're not being as good as they want to be at making sure that they have a diverse pool of folks, particularly black talent, uh, to advance. Um, And frankly, in the wake of the recession, in the wake of the outbreak of the pandemic, and in the wake of Mr. George Floyd's murder, you've got a lot of CEOs, to their credit, who are stepping back and who are seriously asking the question, is this country is this country what it says it is in terms of being a land of opportunity for all? And if not, what can I do about it? And they are concluding it's not as, as good as we can be, and they can do something about it, and they want to. And so the combination of uh, a need for great talent, a need for additional channels to that great talent, and understanding that to become a more perfect union, we've got to be better than we are, is all, are all the things that are usually in that conversation with those CEOs as they are making a commitment to the 110 journey. And remember, they make a 10-year commitment to hiring and advancing Black talent without a four-year degree into living wage careers. And so those are all the kinds of things that are in that conversation. And um, look, the, the, the sort of, what I would tell you is, but for the series of events in 2020, right? The, the outbreak of the pandemic, the recession, the killings, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Mr. George Floyd's murder. But for that series of events, the opportunity to do something like this would not be present. But because of those events, the opportunity to do something like this is real. And CEOs are signing up. And um, we got a lot of work to do. But boy, is this a promising opportunity for us. Uh, I really appreciate that. Let's last networking. 
associations, uh, the men and women who support you uh, in this journey. What's it like and who are some of the names of individuals who really have joined in supporting you on this vision, who bring the expertise, the talent, and, and once again, their networks uh, to make this vision a reality for those people who may not know some of the names that are behind this uh, phenomenal opportunity? Yeah, so when you think of uh, the names who are uh, lending their um, their their talent, their their financial capital, their intellect, their brand. You're talking about Ken Frazier, uh, who was until recently the CEO of Merck, still is the chairman of Merck. You're talking about Ken Chenault, right? Uh, the uh, former CEO of American Express and now runs a venture capital uh, investment firm, General Capital. You're talking about Jenny Rometty, who was the CEO of IBM and was the chair of uh, IBM as well. You're talking about people like uh, Charles Phillips, who was a senior executive Oracle and now has been investing in technology companies all over the country. Or Kevin Shera, who was the CEO of Amgen. I mean, you're, you're talking about folks who have had substantial, substantial experience uh, running uh, some of America's largest corporate enterprises. But in addition to them, you're talking about people who range from um, Merit America to year up to um, apprenticeship programs like Multiverse uh, to uh, uh, even uh, New York University is amongst the folks who are really um, joining this effort. I mean, we, it, is, um, it is a really, truly diverse set of nonprofit folks and for-profit folks who have come together, who have seized this mission and who understand that this mission is important for, yes, individuals and their families, yes, the corporate sector, but yes, the country, that the country needs to be great at getting talent off the sidelines black talent off the sidelines into our companies if we're going to continue to be a great country. I love that. Uh, lastly, skill set acquisition. If you were sitting with a, a group of um, just brothers and sisters who are really working to think about, you know, not going to do the college thing, um, but I need to have some key skill sets that uh, CEO Jones has said, you know, these are something you can acquire. Uh, so, so three things I would say to them. There are a bunch of organizations that are not four-year enterprises that can help you acquire technical skills needed for a job. It ranges from the apprenticeship programs to military transition programs. If you're thinking about the military to online boot camps, you can do a coding boot camp in eight weeks and be prepared for a great job. Um, our community colleges with their certifications and their licenses. So there, there are a host of organizations that can help um, individuals acquire skills. That's number one. The second thing, um, and I wanna really stress this, there are those durable skills that 
you have to make sure you're focusing on hustling, working hard, uh, working uh, as a great teammate, um, collaborating with other people, showing up on time. Those durable skills, again, there are organizations that can help you hone those, and there's a lot we can do ourselves individually. But those are really important, and those, those are the ones, I call them durable because they, you need them to be great at every job, in every uh, organization. Um, the technical piece may change from job to job, from company to company. The durable skills you need in eternity. And then the last one that I'll tell you is your own values. You've got to make sure that you're focusing on those things that are important to you. Honesty, character, trustworthiness, the kinds of things that at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you never compromise on, that, that, that really characterize who you want to be. And when you confront an opportunity that seems to be inconsistent with your values, pass on that opportunity. Take a pass on that opportunity. Don't sacrifice your values. Those are the things I would tell all our folks, wherever you are, middle school, high school, post-secondary school, those things are the things that I'm seeing that when you package them and focus on them and focus on them as a lifetime journey, um, you will find that you can not only make a living, but make a life. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, CEO to CEO, uh, my dear brother, CEO, 110, uh, really impressed, uh, really appreciate everything that you gave us here today, uh, Maurice Jones, and obviously there's a JD there, you guys, but this is CEO to CEO, and I'm Munson Steve. We'll see you real soon.